In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. God, we come to you now as we open your word, expecting to see your face, expecting to draw near to you. We, we come to your word hungry. We want to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll make our hearts off to that truth. Holy Spirit, we pray that you make us attentive. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll be transforming us from one degree of glory to the next that we might understand and grasp the riches of the love and grace that you've given to us in Christ. Help us to understand what it means to be redeemed. Father, may the word be sweet as honey and precious like gold. God, as we wrap our minds and our hearts around this, that you might just fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might be set on fire to love you and to love one another. Father, convict us when we need to be convicted, but God, we pray that you will comfort us as well as we're people who are weary from a world that says you are not good enough, that you haven't done enough, that you have to get your act together. God, we pray that as we come to you, that it might be balm to our souls. Jesus, I need that balm. I need to hear from you today. And so as we study your word, Give us this kind of hunger and desire for it. Help us to live as lights in your kingdom, in, in this world, lights for your kingdom in this world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever talked to a child after the child goes on a big trip that was exciting? Say they went to Disney World. And you're talking to a four- or five-year-old child, and you ask, hey, how was Disney World? This is how they respond. Absolutely no order whatsoever. It's just spurting off all their favorite things. You can tell they had a fun time because they're just saying, we saw Mickey, and we rode teacups, we flew in an airplane, we ate waffles, we went swimming, and we saw Grandma, and we watched movies, and we wore ears, and it was awesome! They just list it all out. There's no order to it. There's no outline to it. You can tell they loved it, but there's no organization because they're just like too excited to even put organization to the experience that they just had. I asked my kids, how was school? It's like, good. And then when you try to draw it out, it's just like, there's no organization. It's just kind of like, this happened, this happened, and then like that, that's something that happened at like 3 p.m., and then they tell me later something that happened at like 9 a.m., you know? There's no organization. This is how my day was or whatever. That's kind of how Paul is acting in, in Ephesians 1. He starts it off by saying, we have been blessed in the spiritual places with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been blessed in that way. He starts us off with that. And then he just starts listing out all the different ways that we've been blessed. He starts just go, going after it, telling us all the different ways that we've been blessed. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It's just this long, run-on sentence. He goes from verse 3 to verse 14, one sentence. It doesn't, it, you can't write it in one sentence in, in English. 
The English translators have to put periods and capitalizations in that. Otherwise, people would be like, hey, there's typos. You've got to run on sentence here. This isn't proper grammar. But in Greek, it works. And so Paul is just gushing out this love for God because what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, you've been blessed by God. And in fact, if he's going to give us any sort of organization, anything in here, there's not actually much. It it, it kind of rambles for a minute. But if there is anything, it's this idea that he's trying to describe God. And the way that he describes God, I don't even think he intentionally did this. I think it's just kind of intuitive to who he is. He starts talking about the Trinity. He starts working his way through the Trinity. If you look at it, the, f- the first three verses of this that we looked at last week, verses three through six, I guess that's four verses, he talks about God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And then he talks about how that God and Father, how he chose us, how he predestined us, and how he adopted us. Clearly ideas about the Father. And then verses 7 through 10, he starts talking about the Son. In Christ, in the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. This is all about the Son, what the work of, the, of Christ. And then if, as you look at verses 11 through 13, he moves on to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how the Holy Spirit, He, he seals us and He assures us. I just find that so cool, church. I find that so cool that when Paul talks about God, when he talks about what it means to be blessed by God, he just starts talking about the character of God. Because to be blessed by God is to know God. (laughs) And when he talks about knowing God, he starts talking about the Trinity. Because that is the essence of the Christian understanding of who God is. is this triune God. I love the way that Michael Reeves says this in the the delightful book, Delighting in the Trinity. I was reading this last night, and just my heart was full on God. This is just such a good book. But he says this in, in one of the opening paragraphs. He says, it's only when you grasp what it means for God to be Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart grabbing loveliness of God. And so this week, as we continue at Paul's description of the blessings that we receive from God, which are actually just receiving God himself through the Trinity, we're going to be looking at the second person of the Trinity, who is the Redeemer, our Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The focus on this week is what Jesus has done for us, which has redeemed us, that he has bought us redemption Four points on redemption from this passage. They'll go quickly, okay? Point number one, what is redemption? Point number two, why do we need it, redemption? Point number three, how does God offer us redemption? And point number four, I don't know what I'm doing with my fingers, but point number four, what is God's plan for redemption? That felt really good until I got to four, and then it's like, I can't really, anyways. Um, What is God's plan for redemption? So, point number one, what is redemption? Redemption is one of those words that we don't use a lot outside of church contexts. But it is such a popular word in the church context, is it not? This church itself used to be called Redeemer. We merged with City on a Hill three years ago, had a pastoral transition. It It was like a church merger while the church was still a plant. So, so it was kind of like a replant, 
and then like a and then like a church plant at the same time because we weren't established yet. It was messy, um, but delightful, and God saw us through that. But the name of the church before it was City on a Hill was Redeemer. If you look around at churches, I I kind of feel like to name a church these days you just need a hat and you need to throw a few words into it like city redemption. Uh, church, community, and, and maybe throw in like a, a hill in there as well and just draw them out and see what type of order they come in. It's kind of like Mad, a Mad Lib uh, for church names. But redemption is just such a popular name for churches and it's such a popular idea. And here's how Paul talks about it. In verse 7 he says, In him, which is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now we use the word redemption so often, but let me ask you this. Can you define it? Do you know what it means? I think that redemption has kind of become a colloquialism in our church. It's kind of become like the word literally, where it doesn't mean much at all. Literally, we use literally the way that uh, we should use figuratively normally. (laughs) Normally. And so most people don't even know what redemption means as they talk about it. But here's a simple definition of redemption. It means to buy back or to release from captivity. To buy back or to release from captivity. I can't think of many modern ways that we use this other than maybe like a redemption ticket. So if I go to the museum, I might give them my coat if it's the winter at the coat closet. And they might give me a redemption ticket. And then when I'm done looking at the art that I want to look at, I'll take my redemption ticket back to them and release my coat from the captivity of the closet. And that's how the the redemption works in that case. You have to redeem it. We get these redemption codes often where we have to buy it back. I actually think a better word for redemption in our cultural context, a word that hasn't lost its meaning, is this one, ransom. And here's why. It has a very close meaning, and actually the translations for the words in Greek are very similar. They, the, the Greek words that you see translated as redemption or redeem, and the Greek word for ransom are almost the same. They have the same uh, root in them, which is lutro. And so for redemption, we have this word elutrotheta. Uh, for ransom, excuse me, we have this word elutrotheta. And for redemption, we have this word apolutrosin. So you hear Lutro in the middle of both of those. And so when we talk about redemption, you can kind of think about that in a similar terms with ransom. They have very similar and overlapping meanings. And we know what ransom means because we've all seen the TV shows where the, the ransom letters sent in. You know, they've cut out the words in the magazine and they've taped it all together and they say, hey, I have someone you love. Send me $5 million by 5 p.m. if you want the person back. And they're holding a ransom. And to hold a ransom means that you, you have to pay to have it released. So that's what redemption is. It's to buy back from captivity. Now the question is, point two, why do we need that? Why do we need that? Why is that something that Paul is just saying, this is a blessing from God? We need this redemption. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Friends, we need redemption, church, because we need forgiveness. 
And the question is, what do we need forgiveness from? Why do we need forgiveness? What's wrong with us? And simple, you've heard this before more than, more than likely, unless you just wandered into a church for the first time, but we need, we need forgiveness because we're sinners, because we've gone our own way. But not only that, but the Bible says that we're in captivity to sin. So what does it mean that we're sinners? Does it just mean that we've broken the rules, that we've done the wrong things, that we've failed to check the boxes, or that we've, we haven't checked the boxes, or that we've checked the wrong boxes? What does it mean that we're sinners? If we just think about our need for forgiveness as a fact that we've broken the rules, then we just relate to God as a divine police officer. Where maybe we've been speeding, so he pulls us over, and we beg for forgiveness. But all we have to, all the way, the only way that we can relate with him then is by him saying, okay, I'll let you off. It's not a real relationship, though, in that case. I think the sin is more complicated than merely breaking the rules, doing the wrong things. And this goes way back into church history. If you look into the, around the, the beginning of the 5th century, or the end of the 5th century, somewhere around there, there was this debate between two famous theologians. And one of them was named Pelagius, and the other one was named Augustine. You've heard of Augustine. You've probably heard of Pelagius. He, there's a famous heresy, Pelagianism. But this is how it went. Pelagius taught that the primary thing wrong with you was simply that you had done wrong things. was simply that you had broken the rules, that you were a sinner because you did the wrong stuff. You had done bad things, which is true. We have done bad things. And that if you ever wanted to go to heaven, Pelagius taught, you must start doing the right things. Be good. Follow the rules. That sounds eerily like the Christianity that many of us were taught. Does it not? Yet we know that Pelagianism is a heresy. And so Augustine, on the other hand, said that the main thing wrong with you is not that you have broken the rules. The main thing wrong with you, the source of your sin, is that you have loved wrongly. That you have loved the wrong things. You see, Augustine sees God not primarily as a police officer, but God primarily as a father and as a, source, a, a person to be worshipped. And so Augustine said, the primary problem with you is not a rule-breaking problem. The primary problem with you is a worship disorder. You worship the wrong things. And when you worship the wrong things, when you love things more than you love God, you do end up breaking the rules, but it's bound in this idea of this covenant relationship between you and God. Not this idea of this relationship between you and God, the great police officer, who you beg to let you off the hook. No, when you sin against God, it breaks the covenant. It breaks the relationship. It hurts the relationship. And so Augustine would say, that we love things. We might love things like security, approval. We might love things like money, appearances. We might love things like, uh, like um, sex. We might love all kinds of things more than we love God. We weren't simply created to live under his moral code. We were made to find rest and satisfaction 
in his all-satisfying love, so Augustine says. So what's wrong with us? Is it just that we've broken the rules? Or is it, as Augustine says, not that we have just behaved wrongly, but that we have loved wrongly, that we have sought the wrong things, that we've been captivated by wayward loves, that our hearts have been drawn to love all kinds of things more than we love God. And these wayward loves actually lead us to break the laws of God. Because when you love success more than anything, when you love success more than anything, what does it do to you? What does it do to your heart? It rots it from the inside. You become self-consumed and willing to cut corners, willing to tell small lies, willing to put up an appearance that's not the real you so that others might approve of you and so that you might achieve the success that you so desire more than anything, more than you even desire love. And Augustine is 100% correct in this regard because you look at Jesus and when Jesus is asked, what is the, most, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment in all of the scripture? What does he say? He doesn't say follow the 10 commandments. What does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not only love him with all of your heart, but love him with all of your being, all that you are. That's what Jesus says. And then he says, trick question, it's not just one commandment, there's two. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law breaking can be broken down to a failure to do one of those two great commandments. When you fail one of those two great commandments, that is where our law breaking comes from. So church, what is wrong with you? I would tell you that what's most wrong with you is not simply that you've done wrong things, although you have, or that you failed to do the right things, but what's wrong with you is that you failed to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength, that you have a love disorder, that you have a worship disorder, that I have a worship disorder. And this is why being a good person because the world is full of good people in, in one regard. I mean, they've broken God's law, but when I look at my neighbors, they're good people. You know, I like my neighbors. This is why being a good person, merely a good person, doing the right things or altering your behavior will never be enough. And you'll never feel like you do enough. The world tells you that that is the way you should live. It says, do more, be better. Accomplish more, be more successful, prove that you're enough, get your act together. But what is the message of Christianity? Is not get your act together. The message of Christianity is Jesus Christ saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden from trying to get your act together, and I will give you rest for your souls. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so as we come to Him, He changes our loves and actually inspires us to love God and to be captivated by his love. You see, he releases us from our captivity to sin and gives us a new captivity. We become slaves to God. He gives us this new captivity of love for God, which is the way that we were created to function. You see, when you love other things, you're actually functioning outside of God's intended operational plans. If you were to read the operational manual for the human self, it is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so you're using 
the, the, the thing that he created not with the intended purposes, which is the way you break stuff, okay? I talk to my, my kids about this all the time. Like, that wasn't intended to be thrown, so that's why it broke when you threw it. And that's how our, our bodies are, and that's how our self is. We use it out of the operating instructions that God gives us. Apart from Christ, what I love most when I'm not in Christ, when I'm not loving Christ with all my heart, soul, and strength, what I love the most is me. And that's captivity. Because then all I'm doing is trying to get more love from me, trying to please me, bring more delight to me instead of to God. I'm a slave to that self-love. And so how does God offer redemption from this captivity of sin that we're caught in, this slave of self-love, this slavery of self-love that we're caught up in? Again, let's look at verse 7. He says this. This is like the fourth time I've read it. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace. So how does he offer us redemption? Really a simple gospel message. Through his blood. He offers us redemption through the simple gospel message of God sent his only begotten son to die the death that we deserve to die, to bear the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might have eternal life as we place our faith and hope in him alone, so that we might be released from our self-love, we might see this this act of selfless love, and we might be released from our self-love so that we can worship him and have relationship with God. Through his blood. You might think, why did Jesus have to die? Why do I have to believe this? Why do we have to talk about all this blood? Why can't Jesus just forgive everyone? And I think that that question reveals that you don't understand the Christian message. You don't understand what he's trying to communicate. Let me give you an illustration. Why Jesus has to do it this way. When you look at what Jesus did, uh, I think that a good movie to think about here might be the, the classic Titanic, all right? Uh, Titanic was released in like 1997, so that means that, uh, you know, that's like 25 years ago, so some of you guys weren't even born yet uh, when Titanic, let that sink in, those of you who are 30 and over, okay? Uh, some of these folks weren't, weren't born yet. Um, so let me just break, it, break down the plot for you a little bit. There's a boat, it's a large boat, it sinks. Um, there's a love story that happens in this story, and it's between uh, two characters named Jack and Rose. And they fall in love very quickly. Jack is from the, the, the lower classes. Rose is from the upper classes. And it's, this, this, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. And at the end of the story, the boat goes down. They're both in the freezing waters of the Atlantic. And what does Jack do? Out of his love for Rose, he finds a piece of driftwood, and instead of climbing on it himself, I think it might be a door or something like that, he helps Rose onto it, and he freezes to death in the, the, the cold water. Jack's act of self-sacrificing love pictures for us the gospel. She could not have lived if he did not die. But he loved her to the extent to where he stayed in the water and placed her on the the piece of wood so that she could live. He took her place in that way. 
Now, I want you to imagine in an alternative reality, it's kind of like the Marvel What If uh, show if you're watching that. Uh, in an alternative reality, there's a diff there, the movie goes differently. And instead, halfway through the movie, before the boat hits a, an iceberg, Jack says, Rose, you know how much I love you? I love you this much. I'm going to run off the side of the boat and jump into the water and die for you. Well, that would make no sense whatsoever. He's accomplishing nothing. He's doing a silly middle school thing. He's saying, I love you this much. He's jumping in the water. But it accomplished no purpose. You see, Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was for a purpose. He died in our place. It was not merely a demonstration of his love. If it was just a, a demonstration of his love, it would be absolutely ridiculous. And so to say, why does Jesus have to die, would be to completely trivialize his death. Because the reason why he died is because he died in our place as our substitution. He took on the wrath of God on our behalf for all of the sin, not merely the, the wrong things that we've done, but all the wrong loves that we've pursued. Jesus bore the penalty and died on our behalf. It's an ultimate act of love. God sent his one and only son to die for us. He paid the price. And he didn't do it begrudgingly, but he did it willingly. Willingly. So that he could lavishly share his grace and kindness with you. Again, verse, verse 7, halfway through. According to the riches of his grace. Verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and and insight. I love this part of this passage. I love it so much. And here's why. I have rarely in my life met a rich person that wasn't stingy. <laughs> right? Oftentimes when we meet people who have a lot, they want to keep their lot. But God, being rich in mercy, he doesn't try to keep it all for himself, but he lavishes it upon us with grace. He lavishes his riches upon us. Friends, I don't know how Satan has tempted you to belittle what Christ has done for you. I don't know what, how Satan has tempted you to not consider the goodness of God. I don't know if maybe you see God as some rich grandparent withholding the best parts of life from you. Or maybe you see God as someone who is trying to punish you for all the ways that you've failed to measure up. But those are lies, messages from Satan. Because our God is generous and kind, and he lavishes his, the riches of his grace upon us. Isn't that good news? That is not just a little bit of grace. It's not just enough grace. It's lavished grace. Think about a piece, of a piece of toast, if you lavish the butter on the toast, that's not just enough butter, that's lavished butter. That's like the, it's delicious. That's what His grace is like. It's lavished on us. It's not merely enough. It's more than enough. It's delightful. It's a feast. That's what His graces are. It's the riches of His grace. So let me ask you this question. Why do you continue to live apart from him? 
Why do you not take advantage of it? Why do you not see it that way? Why do you choose to live in the poverty of self-sufficiency and self-love instead of enjoying the love that God has offered us in Christ? He's offering us the full riches of His grace. Friend, if you've never experienced the full riches of His grace, if you've fallen prey to some counterfeit gospel that tells you to get your act together and that God will love you once you do that, let me invite you to experience the lavish grace of Jesus, which is full of riches because He's kind and He wants to relate with you, not merely let you off the hook. So how does God offer redemption? Only through the blood of Jesus, the grace that he lavishes upon us. And the last point is the shortest one. What is God's plan for redemption? And he handles this in the last couple of verses. He says, making known to us the mystery, that is, this is verse 9, making known to us the mystery, once secret, that, that means it was once secret, now it's revealed, that mystery, of his will, of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And when he says fullness of time, you can think about that, um, maybe a better translation for that is like, when the time was ripe. <laughs> like that, that's when, the, when it happened, when the time was ripe, the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, the world says, the outside world says, the best you can do is to live for today. Make the best of your life today. There's a famous pop psychology book, it was a bestseller written by a Harvard professor. I actually like the book, pretty decent. His name is Dan Gilbert, he has a good sense of humor. Uh, It's an enjoyable read. But what he says in that book is the best you can do is live for today. The book is called Stumbling on Happiness. And he says the best way for you to be happy is just focus on today. And he makes a lot of good points and and things that we can learn from. But I think he's missing this gospel truth. That yeah, if you just live for this life, even later in this life, you're going to be disappointed. But friends, what God is inviting us to is not merely a live for today, make the best of today. He's inviting us of a live for eternity mindset. And he invites us to participate in this grand plan. You see, he has a plan for the world. History has a meaning. And when we are redeemed by Jesus, that is just one small part of his ultimate plan to redeem the whole earth. Because one day, Christ will come back on clouds, probably figurative clouds. I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but he's going to return. He's going to set up the new heavens and the new earth on earth, and all things will be made right again. All brokenness will be reversed. We'll have all of eternity to enjoy one another and explore the world, because he's going to be reconciling the world to him. He's going to unite heaven and earth. This is the great plan of Jesus. And in fact, we pray this all the time. We just don't even think about it. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want heaven to come down to earth, and that is the ultimate plan. And in the meantime, where it happens is in each of our individual lives as we're redeemed with Jesus and in the church as we come together. We're not perfect, We won't be until he returns, but we get little tastes of it. 
we get a little taste of this eternal life that we have with him. Isn't that comforting? That if you've tasted of the riches of God, know that it's just a taste. But one day you'll, you'll eat in full. It's good news that he's not going to get sick of us one day and decide to just start over and just wreck the world. Now, the greater plan of God is to reunite heaven and earth and for us to spread his glory over the whole earth. And one thing that he talks about is that we get to eat a meal with him when he reunites heaven and earth. And today, we get a little peek into that time where we celebrate a communion meal. And this communion represents the fact that his blood was, was spilled for us. You see, we have forgiveness through his blood. And so we're reminded of that through a physical uh, a reminder each week, which is this communion meal, that his body was broken for us, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and his blood was shed for us. And so as we participate in this meal, we're, we're being reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and we're examining ourselves and saying, hey, am I living in line with it? Is there anybody I need to reconcile with? Is there any sin I need to repent of? These are questions that we ask, and we deal with God at this time. It's an invitation to deal with your junk, is there anything I'm living for that is wrong, that is false living, that is a wayward love? And for you to return and come back to God. He invites you to the meal each week, saying, come on back, come on back. Like the good father and the prodigal son, come on back. We'll, we'll, we'll slaughter the fattened calf, let's go. And that's what he's inviting you to each week. So let's stand and respond to Jesus.